greener. Right after I um, read that story to the kids about uh, George Whitfield, Derek came and told me that, uh, was it Robert Robertson? Robert, Robert, Robertson. I always find it funny when parents name their kids a first name identical to their last name. Um, Steph Stefano or something like that. But anyway, um, uh, he told me right after I read the story that the guy who wrote the uh, song, Come Thou Fount, actually came to Christ under George Whitfield's ministry. So kind of interesting there. I didn't know that. Well, the night before Jesus was killed, everything fell apart for Jesus' band of friends or students or disciples, however we want to call that group. It really was one of Jesus' darkest hours of his ministry, uh, possibly just as dark as the crucifixion itself. As Jesus finished praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, he encouraged his disciples to pray with him, and we read that the disciples continually fell asleep. And then finally, after Jesus was agonizing in prayer and he came once again to wake the disciples, uh, no sooner did those disciples wake up than he was encountered by one of his disciples who was not there at the time, who came with a crowd armed with swords and clubs. The disciple's name was Judas, and as Luke tells it, Judas walked over to Jesus to greet him with a kiss. Uh, But Jesus knew that this was not a kiss of affection. Uh, Maybe it was just Jesus' insight into the situation, or maybe it was the fact that when you're being followed by a whole group of people with clubs and swords, there's probably a a signal going to you from that as well. Uh, Jesus knew that there was hypocrisy in this act, and that it was a kiss of betrayal. Luke goes on to say, Jesus said, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? Then those who came to arrest Jesus took him to the high priest Caiaphas. Caiaphas then handed Jesus over to the Romans, and the Romans had him crucified. But it wasn't just Judas's betrayal at that moment in the Garden of Gethsemane that would have been so hurtful to Jesus. But when that moment happened and when Jesus was captured, we read in Matthew, then all Jesus' disciples deserted him and fled. Betrayed by one of his disciples and then deserted by all the others. But it actually gets worse. Peter, one of those disciples who fled, tries to hide in the background to see what is going to happen to Jesus once he's captured by this mob. But on three different occasions, someone approaches Peter and looks at Peter, recognizes him, and says, Peter, aren't you one of his followers? I think on one of the occasions when I saw Jesus preaching, I'm pretty sure I saw you there with him. And each time Peter is confronted with that question of whether or not he's a follower of Jesus, each time he denies it. On the third occasion, we read that Peter even swore and said, a curse on me if I'm lying. I don't know the man. 
Earlier, Jesus predicted that Peter was going to do this. Peter, you are going to deny me three times, Jesus said. And when Jesus warned Peter of this, Peter actually swore that he would never deny Jesus. And then a short time after, Peter is here swearing that he doesn't even know the man. As Jesus climbed the hill of Golgotha to be nailed to a cross, he was betrayed, he was deserted, and he was denied by his most loyal followers. It really was one of Jesus' darkest hours. Last week, we looked at Jesus' ascension at the beginning of the book of Acts. And we talked about how the ascension highlights that Jesus completed his ministry here on earth. He finished what he came to do. That he reigns as God alongside of his heavenly father to rule over both the visible and the invisible world and universe. And that Jesus is going to come back one day just as he went away and he is going to set everything right including the raising of his people in new bodies and the new heavens and the new earth and the destruction of sin, death, and the devil. As Jesus ascends into heaven, he tells his disciples that they are to wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit. He commissions them to take the gospel message out to the world and says that they are going to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. And they are to go to the ends of the earth and to share this message of who Jesus is. Well, that waiting period from when Jesus ascends to what we call Pentecost, the coming of the Holy Spirit, was a 10-day waiting period. And the passage of Scripture that we're going to look at today is that waiting period. And there are several things in Acts chapter 1, verses 12 to 26 that we could look at. Uh, But I'm going to highlight and focus on one particular aspect of this passage of Scripture, of this waiting time. And that is, I want to highlight who is there. Because I think when we look at who is there during this waiting period, it sends a strong message of who Jesus is and what he stood for. After Jesus' ascension, Luke begins this section of Acts by writing, Then all of the disciples returned to Jerusalem. And then Luke, after saying that, intentionally names each one of them. Verse 13, here are the names of those who were present. Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, Judas, the son of James. Now, if you counted that on your fingers as I went through that list, you will count 11 disciples. And the Judas that's mentioned there, son of James, is a different Judas from Judas Iscariot, the one that betrayed him. Uh, Judas is uh, the one that betrayed him, is absent from this list. And for many of us, and especially if we know the story, that doesn't surprise us that Judas is absent from the list of the 12 apostles here at this point. But what really should surprise us about this particular passage is not so much who is absent, but what really should surprise us is who's present. 
And that is the 11 people I just mentioned. What happened between and all Jesus' disciples deserted him and this list here in Acts, 11 out of 12, that are now waiting for the coming Holy Spirit. What happened? Why are they here when they all deserted him? I'm going to answer that question this morning by, by contrasting two disciples, because I think the one disciple kind of represents the other ten. And that is, by contrasting the stories of denial and abandonment of Jesus in the life of Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed him, and also Peter. See, both Judas and Peter turned their backs on Jesus the night before his execution. Certainly, as I said, all the disciples did, but these two did in dramatic fashion. So much so that their stories are told in a lot more detail. And what's interesting is both Judas and Peter show extreme sorrow and even repentance for what they did. After Peter denied Jesus the third time, the Bible says that Peter left the courtyard weeping bitterly. And after Judas betrayed Jesus, we read that he was, he was paid to do this. And after he did it, we read that he took the money that he was paid, threw it at the feet of those who paid him off for Jesus' betrayal, and then cried out, I've sinned, for I've betrayed an innocent man. Now, if you allow yourself to feel the emotion behind these passages, it really breaks your heart. Especially when we know if we're honest with ourselves how many times we can confess these same things. Peter left the courtyard weeping bitterly. And Judas cried out, I've sinned. I've betrayed an innocent man. And yet afterwards... After all of this is finished and Jesus is taken to the cross and then resurrected and ascended into heaven, after all of this, Peter's name is here on the list with the disciples. And Judas's name is not. So what happened? Why do we find Peter's name here and why don't we find Judas's name? What's the difference? Well, what I'm going to suggest is that the difference is in the kind of repentance and the kind of sorrow that each of them manifested. Because you see, there is two kinds of sorrow and repentances. There, there is a certain sorrow and repentance that leads to life, and there's a certain sorrow and repentance that leads to death. Now, I can imagine what it must be like to know that you drank too much, got in a car, and either killed someone or seriously injured them because you were drinking and driving. Beyond the, the obvious external consequences, such as being fined, such as jail time, or the loss of your license, those kinds of things that happen with them, there's the inner consequences of guilt 
and shame and the horror of what your irresponsible actions and your sinful behavior has done to someone else. Now, many people that have done that become sorrowful and repentant of what they've done, but they end up becoming a shell of a person. Uh, the self-condemnation will not go away. The continual nightmares, depression, anxiety, phobias. Some people have a hard time even socializing and or interacting with other people, even leaving their house and getting out and being able to, to talk with other people. And some find the burden of guilt so unbearable that it ends up in their choosing suicide. Now, there is real sorrow here, and there's real repentance here. We cannot deny that, but it is a sorrow, and it's a repentance, and it's a despair that leads to their destruction. But then there are those like Jordan Taylor. In 2015, at the age of 22, Jordan Taylor was drunk, got behind the wheel of a car, and as too often happens, drove off the road and plowed into a young lady by the name of Tina Adams who was jogging just outside of her house. Now in the accident, Tina suffered a cracked skull, a fractured spine, she received a traumatic brain injury, and she continues to this day to suffer from blood clots. She's had, at the current state of things, 19 surgeries. Now, last year in a courtroom, uh, Taylor ap apologized profusely for all the horrible things that happened to Tina and the things that he caused her because he struck her with his car. And, and that was thoughtful of, of Taylor, but not uncommon. But then what happened next blew everybody away, shocked everyone in the courtroom, and that was that Tina then asked Jordan if he'd accompany her to speak at schools across Canada about what he did to her through his actions in order to help educate and warn teens not to do likewise. And there wasn't even a second of silence or pause in that courtroom because Jordan immediately said, yes, I will. This is the first time anything like this has happened in Canada. Where later on this year, both victim and perpetrator will be traveling across Canada speaking together against drunk driving. Not only does this say something about the kind of sorrow and the kind of repentance of Jordan Taylor, but it also speaks very highly of Tina Adam and her character of extending forgiveness and embracing Taylor in this way. You see, in this case, there is real sorrow and repentance here, but it was a sorrow and repentance that led to life. What makes the difference? What causes some people to have a sorrow and a repentance that simply leads to their self-destruction and other people to have a sorrow and repentance that leads to enabling life. We're going to see in the life of Judas and Peter, and, and I would say that in most other cases it's the same, that a lot of it has to do with how 
we receive forgiveness. For forgiveness, surprisingly, receiving forgiveness is, is usually harder than even the sorrow and repentance. The sorrow and repentance is a very natural and, and, and right response if you still have a conscience. Some people can become so hardened that that no longer is something that manifests. But anybody that still has a conscience, when they have done something wrong, there is sorrow, there is repentance. But to be able to receive forgiveness can be so difficult. To be able to accept forgiveness. See, Judas, after he confessed and said, I have sinned. I mean, I mean what clearer confession can, can that be? He, he didn't sort of try to justify himself. He didn't try to explain it away. He just simply came out and said, I have sinned. I've betrayed an innocent man. And yet we read... In Matthew, that after that, Judas went out and hanged himself. Now, for some reason, Luke decides to write about what uh, happened to Judas uh, much more graphically. I'm not sure why. Maybe it's because Luke's a doctor and he was kind of into that thing. But in Acts chapter 1, verse 18, he writes that Judas fell headfirst, his body split open, spilling out all of his intestines everywhere. It's a little bit more graphic than Matthew. Now, some see a bit of a discrepancy here between the way Matthew describes an obvious hanging and the way that um, Luke describes Judas' death with somehow falling off a cliff and his body splattering everywhere. But whether there is a discrepancy or not doesn't really matter. Both agree that Judas, because of his despair, because of, of his betrayal of Jesus... An inability to accept the forgiveness threw his life away in some manner. It was a sorrow and a repentance that led to his death. Peter, on the other hand, is not only here in Acts waiting for the Holy Spirit to come, but he's even taking on a leadership position amongst the disciples. You see, there is only 11 disciples, and so uh, Peter decides to say, you know what, there should be 12 disciples, represents the 12 tribes of Israel, and so while he's waiting for the Holy Spirit, he decides we need to do something about this, and uh, we need to make sure that there are 12 disciples. And so he sets up a process of, um, a process of elimination to say, well, in order to be a disciple, you have to have walked with Jesus for all of his ministry. They have all these criteria. They come up with two people, and then they draw straws, and Matthew's the one that is chosen. Or, or sorry, um, uh, Matthias is the one that's being chosen. And just as a side here, I used to think earlier on in my ministry that this, like drawing straws to pick the 12 apostles, I used to think this was like the dumbest thing in the world. After 25 years of ministry, I see the wisdom in this. And I would actually propose it. Um, if you have two equally qualified, let's say, elders or, or leaders for the church for one position... The wisdom of flipping a coin to decide who to take the position rather than having a popularity contest and having the two people voted on. So 40% of the church votes on this guy, 60% of the church votes on this guy. When they're both equally qualified, 
Now, I think the flipping of the coin is actually a very wise method uh, of what they did. So I have to uh, give Peter credence here for his wisdom um, and letting just God decide through the flip of a coin. But either way, Peter takes a leadership responsibility. He takes a role and, 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 and is doing things, even in this waiting time. What happened with Peter? After Peter denies Christ and runs out of the courtroom weeping and in and, 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 and this sorrow of dis, and, and disappears. Why is he now here? You see, when Jesus rose from the dead, Matthew says that the first people Jesus showed himself to were in what I think is a hilarious line. It, that Jesus showed himself to Mary Magdalene and that other Mary. And I'm just like, how would you like to be known as that other Mary? Especially when in, in Jesus' day, in the culture back then, Mary was like one of the most common names possible. It would be like the name Wong in Chinese. So it'd be like, Jesus met with Wong and that other Wong. So Mary and Mary, who Jesus met, then went and told the rest of the disciples that Jesus had risen from the dead. And when they told the other disciples, we read that both John and Peter run to the tomb. I don't know if Peter had a little bit of a paunch on him, but John won the foot race. But John was a little more tentative, and so it says that when John got to the tomb, he kind of stayed on the outside. And when Peter finally caught up with him, it says Peter went immediately into the tomb. And to look around, to see the burial cloth there. This same kind of eagerness in Peter is seen on another occasion after Jesus' resurrection. Peter and a few of the other disciples have gone back to fishing, and they're in the boat it's early in the morning, and they're fishing. They haven't caught anything. There's a guy along the shore that all of a sudden calls out to them and says, hey, throw the nets on the other side. And they're like, what does this guy know? But okay, they throw their nets on the other side, and they have this huge catch of fish. And then John, again, it's John and Peter on the boat. John says to Peter, hey, it's Jesus. And it says, as soon as Peter knew it was Jesus, he jumped off the boat and swam to shore to be with Jesus. And then we have that, that wonderful story when, when Peter gets to the shore of Jesus then saying to him, Peter, do you love me? Peter says, yes, Lord, you know I love you. And then Jesus asks him again, and then a third time. And it says that Peter was hurt when Jesus asked him the third time. He knows why Jesus is asking him three times because he betrayed Jesus three times just a few nights ago. And Peter was hurt that Jesus asked him the question a third time and he says, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Peter runs to the tomb. Peter's the first to enter the tomb. Peter jumps in the water to see Jesus. Jesus, you know everything. You know that I love you. It was a sorrow and a repentance in Peter that led to life. Because of his love for Jesus and his, his openness to receiving forgiveness. Judas obviously felt guilty about betraying someone he knew 
was innocent. And I don't know what the ultimate fate of Judas in eternity is going to be. That's, that's in God's hands. But Judas was unable to believe that Jesus could forgive him and still love him. And so Judas threw his life away. Judas was unable to forgive himself. And therefore he was unable to be open to God's forgiveness And whenever we're unable to be open to God's forgiveness, we end up being unable to extend that forgiveness outwardly to others. And I've run into this numerous times. People who are unable to forgive themselves because of something that they have done in their past. And therefore, they are unable to be open to God's forgiveness. They'll often say things to me like, I'm just not worthy to be forgiven. But see, saying that is a misunderstanding of forgiveness in itself. Because if you were worthy to be forgiven, you wouldn't need to be forgiven. Then you have earned it. You've paid your dues. You paid your debt. Forgiveness, by very definition, is receiving something that you can't earn. That you haven't earned. That's why it's forgiveness. It's being granted to you because nothing else can be granted to you. It's simply the person or God saying, I forgive. You can't make this right. I forgive. And usually when we forgive, it also means that we take the hurt on ourselves. God certainly did. And it's the same thing. When I forgive you, it doesn't necessarily make everything right. When I forgive you, it means that, that how you hurt me, I'm willing to take the hurt. Because I'm no longer going to try to try to get back at you to get rid of the hurt. I am simply going to absorb it. I'm going to take the punch. I'm going to take the slap. I forgive you. I absorb the hurt. Whenever we're forgiven, we're not worthy. When this is accepted, we cannot help but become a people of love. When we've truly been forgiven, when we understand it, when we've experienced it, we have to forgive others. That's why Jesus said, those who have been loved much, love much. Those who have been forgiven much, forgive much. That's also why uh, oftentimes the religious crowd, the uppity-ups, were some of the hardest people because they really didn't think they needed much forgiveness. And so they didn't extend much. Peter's running and diving and entering into the tomb and doing whatever it took to get to Jesus. His Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. It just oozes of love. Loving others as God has loved you, forgiving others as God has forgiven you, this becomes the way of life for those that have been forgiven and loved by Jesus. It's a sorrow and repentance that leads to life. What Tina Adams and Jordan Taylor displayed in that courtroom was love. Now, it wasn't a romantic kind of love, but what everybody saw in that courtroom was a higher love. A love for each other's humanity. A love that extends itself in forgiveness 
and in being forgiven. So that together they could speak to people across Canada and tell them about life and how to make choices that are life-oriented choices. You know, the, the, the fact that the book of Acts, I, I, I always find this fascinating, the fact that the book of Acts is about a church being born by a group of people or out of a group of people that all walked away from Jesus is a pretty strong testimony. I mean, think about that. The, the, the core group of the first church were all people who walked away from Jesus in his darkest hour. That's our roots. The only reason that they were still there is because Jesus extended it love and forgiveness for them and they were willing to receive it. And if that's our roots, that should say something about the rest of the tree and the rest of us. That really all of us here today, we are a collection of individuals who are here for no other reason than that Jesus has forgiven us. And we've received it. We have done nothing to deserve this. We are unworthy, forgiven people who because we get it, we forgive others. As Christ has forgiven us. That's a sorrow and repentance that leads to life. If I was stranded on an island and I could only take one series of books with me and I floated to that island with my reading chair and, and obviously I, I would have to have my Bible. I mean, that's just the, the right answer to say. But, uh, but, but after the Bible, if I had to take one set of books with me and I would be there for the rest of my life, it would be C.S. Lewis's Tales of Narnia. I am continually drawn in by those children's stories, by the images of Jesus there in the character of Aslan, in, in, in my depth and my love for Jesus. In The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the children Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy enter Narnia, the world created by Aslan. But like our world, Narnia has fallen into darkness, it's fallen into sin because of the white witch, and it's always winter but never Christmas. And early on, Edmund, one of the four children, betrays his brother and two sisters and goes over to the side of the white witch, only to find out, as so often happens when we give in to sin, that he is now enslaved to the white witch, and the white witch is a cruel taskmaster. And like Jesus in the story, Aslan comes along, and Aslan decides to offer his life up for Edmund's life. And the white witch decides to make the exchange because she thinks this is her way of conquering Aslan. And then Edmund is set free. She takes Aslan and she kills Aslan. But then like the gospel story, Aslan rises from the dead again. Because the white witch only knew of the deep magic, but Aslan knew of the deepest magic. And that is that when someone who is innocent gives up his life for even the worst sinner, that then death gets defeated and starts working backwards. And life starts to ooze out of all of the creation. 
So this is what happens. And um, after Aslan has come back to life and he is with Edmund and he has rescued Edmund, the white witch comes and looks at Aslan with Edmund standing there amongst all of Aslan's other disciples and children. And she yells out after this resurrection scene and says, You have a traitor there among you, Aslan. You have a traitor in your midst. Of course, C.S. Lewis writes, everyone present who heard this knew the witch was talking about Edmund. And isn't this exactly what Satan loves to do? He's now the accuser. You're a traitor. You're, you, you betrayed him. You, you have a traitor there, Aslan. These accusations of Satan often come to Christ's forgiven people, and yes, they are true. But if they're embraced they can lead to a repentance that leads to death. Instead, what Edmund does, and the way Lewis writes this is, is so powerful, so beautiful, is the call that we all need to do. After he hears these words, you have a traitor there, Aslan, said the witch. Of course, everyone present knew that she meant Edmund. Then we read, but Edmund had got past thinking about himself after all he'd been through and after the talk he had with Aslan that morning. He just went on looking at Aslan. It didn't seem to matter anymore what the witch said. Isn't that a beautiful picture of the life of the Christian? The Christian has got past thinking about himself even thinking about himself as a traitor. After he met Aslan, after he heard everything from Aslan, after the Christian has met Jesus and heard what Jesus says, all that they now do is they keep looking at Jesus. It doesn't seem to matter anymore what Satan says. I find that line so moving and so powerful against all the accusations of the enemy, all the more so because of my own journey through this about 25 years ago, when I was about 20 years old. Back in Bible school of all places, I became extremely sick for a long period of time, and I grew quite angry with God. And, and during that time of anger uh, for, for not being able to get better and for how this was um, really debilitating me, I, I, I remember quite distinctly cursing God, denying him, and even refusing to go to church for a time. I never got to a point in my life where I did not believe God existed, but I did get to a point where I was simply basically at the point of saying, screw you, God, I don't want anything more to do with you. I want to live my own life. What good have you done for me? Curse God, deny him. I'm not even going to go worship you anymore and just walk away. That's how angry I was. Only later on, as I continued struggling with all of this, to be filled with sorrow and repentance and even fear of what I have done, I even started to struggle with, have I committed the unforgivable sin? And therefore, I'm damned forever for apostasy. And it was at that point in my life where I had to learn what it really meant to be truly forgiven. And in doing so, to learn to extend that kind of forgiveness to others. 
Shortly after this experience, I, I wrote a song that I recorded on a keyboard I had with a computer in, in a friend's basement. And for those of you that want to hear the song, you can go to the website this week, um, and, and I will post a link to the song, and you can listen to the song um, this week in conjunction with the sermon, but I will, I will save you from me performing it for you this Sunday. So when you listen to the song, just remember that I, um, I recorded this 25 years ago in a guy's basement on my computer, and it's not a professional recording, but, but it is me singing and playing and all that stuff. So you can listen to it this week. Now, now I want to end today's message, though, by quoting the lyrics to that song. Because, because in that song, I wrap my journey into Peter's journey. And ultimately, it's my call for all of you to do the same thing. To enter into a sorrow and repentance that leads to life. Which is why I called this song Second Chance. And as we all realize that we, we even get more than a second chance. And the song goes, at least the words, the lyrics go like this. Things, they got tough. I know I ran. Things, they got rough, and I fled far away. I said I'd never leave you, never forsake you, and never go, but I did. And when the soldiers came and took you away, filled with fear, I hid. And now I beat my chest and I cry for forgiveness. How could I, my love, deny? Hanging on that cross without a fight, why, oh, why did I let you die? And then it goes, your love, it never dies. I can see that in your eyes. You're the God of the second chance. You came into the room and said, now you're going to bloom because you're the God of the second chance. And you still hold on to me even when I let go of you because you're the God of the second chance. And with nails in your hands and a spear in your side, you're the God of the second chance. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for giving me a second chance giving Peter, giving the disciples, giving so many of us here. We're followers of you, Jesus, because we're forgiven. Thank you. Thank you for your love, for your forgiveness, for your sacrifice, for your death, and for your salvation that you extended to us even though we rebelled against you. God, I pray that we will be a people that will be open to receiving your forgiveness. That we will, we will receive forgiveness in such a way, Lord, that the life that you offered to us now becomes a life that we can offer to others. May they know that we are Christians by our forgiveness. Lord Jesus, thank you. We worship you. Amen.